This is the Center Square Radio Hour for the third weekend of February 2024. I'm your host, Chris Krug, Chief Executive Officer of the Franklin News Foundation and publisher of the Center Square Newswire service. The Center Square is a 501c3 independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. Our journalist's work is republished in nearly 1,000 news outlets across the United States. Established in 2019, the Center Square publishes original taxpayer-centric straight news that focuses on the size, scope, and effectiveness of state and federal government. Subscribe to our state and national newsletters at thecentersquare.com. On this week's episode of the Center Square Radio Hour, our journalists explore their top stories from those originating in Washington, D.C., to the oftentimes underreported stories from the states that hold national relevance. Today, our coverage also includes economic insights from Dr. Orfe Divangi, Ph.D. economist. We'll also bring you the latest in K-12 education news from our Franklin News Foundation's Chalkboard News Team. To ensure that the Center Square continues to deliver the news like no other media outlet in America today, we ask that you go to franklinnews.org and make a tax-deductible charitable contribution to support the Center Square and the Center Square Radio Hour. In the Center Square Radio Hour today, we'll hear from our reporting team on these headlines from the past week. In national news, as pro-Palestinian protests have left many Jewish students feeling unsafe, some say they found little support from officials. In Colorado, where there's been an influx of migrants who've crossed the southern border, Denver Public Schools have seen as many as 250 new students a week since the new year. And in Washington, the U.S. House impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden continued this week. We'll be right back with all that and more in the Center Square Radio Hour. Some people would call him a loser. He ran for state office. He was beaten. He started a business. He failed. He ran for Congress. He lost. He was nominated for vice president. He lost again. But he knew only those who never tried are the real losers. And Abraham Lincoln was no loser. Persistence. Pass it on. From the Foundation for a Better Life at values.com. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. Pro-Palestinian protests at university campuses across the country have often featured calls for violence against Jews, but Jewish students have found little help from school administrators and federal officials. Dan McCaleb, Chief Content Officer for the Franklin News Foundation and Executive Editor for the Center Square, is here to tell us more. Anti-Semitism has been on the rise across the U.S. over the past several years, but ever since the terrorist group Hamas invaded Israel in a deadly sneak attack last October, and Israel responded by invading Gaza, where Hamas operates, cases of anti-Semitism have spiked dramatically, particularly on college campuses. The Department of Education has received dozens of complaints about the matter. Joining me today to discuss this disturbing trend is Casey Harper, the Center Square Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief. Casey Uh, You interviewed a couple of Jewish students who filed complaints with the Department of Education about these uh, anti-Semitism allegations. What did you learn? Yeah, this is really interesting interviews. One Jewish student and one one of his friends who's not Jewish but was very interested in the issue and actually leads a conservative club on campus. I got an inside look into what has become a very personal issue for many of these students. Of course, there's a war thousands of miles away, of course. Congress, members of Congress are are debating how many billions or or do we send any at all to help Israel in their fight? Do we send money to um, those affected in Gaza? But even though this conflict is in the minds of many Americans, a political issue that's far away, 
Um, for some, it's a religious issue. But for Jewish students on university campuses, it's become um, very personal and they're actually worried about their safety. So one student that I interviewed was Ethan Melman. Now he's over in your neighborhood, Dan, born and raised in Chicago. He's a Jewish student. And uh, he had attended one of these pro-Palestine protests that broke out after October 7th. There was a flood around the nation, if you remember, of all these uh, college students protesting against Israel's response, which has, you know, left thousands of Gaza residents dead. The, the, the death toll numbers is in dispute, in my opinion. Um, but this is the University of you know, Illinois Champaign, Urbana, right? Is that close to you, Dan? Are you in that neighborhood? Well, a few hours away. A few hours away. Yeah, Chicago is and the suburbs are huge. I know that. So Melman goes to this protest as a Jewish student. He's kind of infiltrating it. And some of the things that he heard and he recorded, and I did obtain video of this protest, um, were clearly just were calls for violence right outside of you know where he lived, where he goes to school. Some of the quotes from those, educate those who think violence is unjust. Uh, another quote was, decolonization looks like blood-stained knives and searing bullets. There was a sign I obtained a photo of and it was like a poster, you know, and it says, keep the world clean. And it's got a trash can that the Jewish star of David. So basically keep the world clean, obviously, by putting Jews in the trash or some Jewish culture, however you want to interpret it. And so Melman is recording this. And eventually the protesters there, the pro-Palestinian protesters, realize that he's not really on their side. He's been recording for a while. So they surround him. They cover him with signs to... uh Wow. You know, keep him from being able to video. He says he was kind of struck by these signs and they were, you know, yelling all these different things. And so, the, you know, the protest goes on. Of course, he didn't really shut it down or anything. It was just kind of a dramatic, tense moment of this protest. And he reached out to his university administrators and really got no response. They just told him to seek the resources the university has available, which presumably would be counseling of some kind, I suppose. And then his friend, Ian Tang, who's the, uh, other student who leads the conservative club, he sent a letter to the Department of Education um, asking them to open, you know, to do something about this. You know, the Department of Education, there's a, um, a segment within the, that agency that deals with complaints just like this. It's called shared ancestral complaints. And a theme that I've noticed in these is that it seems like very little gets done. He hasn't really seen any action since he sent that letter. He got a response confirming, you know, that they received it. But it seems from his perspective, nothing has been done. Nothing's been done by the administrators, despite the calls for violence. Many of these protests, they're calling for genocide of Jews and saying that basically violence against Jews is justified because Jews are colonizers of this land. And there's a very long history and debate about all that. But I thought it was interesting to take what is a big political debate and see how there are many, many American Jewish students who this has become a reality for them when they walk out their dorm rooms to see calls for violence against their own people. And first of all, I can see how that can be a, an intimidating uh, situation, Casey, for anybody. I'd feel intimidated, you know, if I was surrounded by a group of people who were protesting against my heritage, essentially, and, and screaming and putting signs in my, in my face, etc. So that these two that you talked to, they filed a complaint with the Department of Education. We know of at least dozens of other complaints similar to this one that were mm-hmm. filed on from campuses across the country. What did the Department of Education tell you about it, Casey? They were not willing to really say anything to me. I did reach out to them, but they didn't give any any substantive response or say that, you know, hey, this is what we're doing and this is what we've have done. They pointed to a press release they released in, you know, last fall, several months ago, uh, that just you know, reminded campuses of their duty to protect 
these students from this kind of discrimination. So I think that really sums up how these Jewish students feel, though. There was a little bit of lip service last fall, but really nothing else. And I think the interesting thing, the thing to hone in on here, because we do believe in free speech and it's very important. And so protests inherently can't really be bad, but it's the calls for violence, the specific calls for violence, which I've seen video of not just on this campus, but in others, because you can imagine a different situation where people are protesting the war of Russia, for instance, you know, protesting Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, and saying, you know, Putin needs to be stopped. We need to fight Russia. We need to send aid to them. And that's a political protest. That's very different from saying death to all Russians, right? All American Russians. Right. And I think that's the distinction to make. The calls for violence against that very people, not just the political issue that's happening. And we've seen these protests. Of course, they've been very public um, on college campuses. There's all, there, there have also been calls for the complete annihilation of the Jewish state of Israel. Mm-hmm. So, all right, Casey, the Department of Education has these complaints, has opened investigations. Do you see it leading anywhere or is it that they just well, hope this whole thing goes away? I mean, I doubt it. I think there is a lot of pressure on this issue because there are so many similar complaints. I could maybe see something happening, but it seems these complaints can stay open for a very long time, even beyond when students graduate. I think if one university had many, many of these complaints, something could happen. But I think ultimately, it seems like a lot of bluster, just administrative, bureaucratic, threatening I don't think there's a lot of teeth behind these investigations. The The Department of Education has the ability to enforce it, but it doesn't seem like there's a will to take any aggressive action. And the school administrators are, I think, very afraid to offend either side. I think they're very afraid of being seen as pro-Israel in any sense, because there's such a strong pro-Palestine sentiment on campuses that I think they really could lose their jobs. We've seen university presidents lose their jobs or take a lot of heat for disagreeing with kind of the liberal orthodoxy on campuses. And so I think they're trying to toe that line and just ride it out, be silent, and hope the issue goes away. Very interesting. Uh, Casey, thank you again for your insight. Listeners can keep up with this story and more at thecentersquare.com. Thank you to our team in D.C. for that update. You're listening to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm your host, Chris Krug. In Colorado, Denver Public Schools have been facing significant challenges as large numbers of new students arrive each week. Eliana Kernodal, Assistant General Manager of America's Talking Network, is here to tell us more. Denver is one of many cities across the nation facing challenges because of the migrant crisis. One area in particular where this has played out is in Denver's public schools, where they have been taking in new students pretty rapidly. Joining me today is Tom Gannert, Managing Editor for the Center Square. Tom, tell us more about this. So let's start from the beginning. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been sending migrants from Texas to sanctuary cities across the U.S. And he's targeted the sanctuary cities. And the the Denver mayor has said he thinks uh, Denver is uh, getting the most of them uh, because it's the quickest and cheapest bus ticket from uh, from Texas. So uh, as of February 12th, Abbott has said that Texas has bused more than 16,200 migrants to Denver. Okay. And they're coming with their children. So what does that mean? Well, uh, Denver Public Schools just came out and said that, that roughly they're getting as many as 250 new students a week. Um, and that's been consistent since the beginning of the year in January. It, it brings a, a couple of interesting points. The first one was that Denver Public Schools enrollment has been stagnant since the pandemic. It was going up a little bit and it reached in 2019, it reached 93,800. Okay. As of 2022-23, it had dropped to 89,200. So they were 
lost students during the pandemic who did not come back. Now what's happening is what they're calling unprecedented is this influx of, of migrant students. It presents a challenge for a couple of reasons for the school district. So schools across the country and in Colorado have these student counts. And that's when these school districts count the number of students. And then a large portion of their funding is dependent upon that. So in Colorado, uh, that's generally in January. So Denver's been getting a lot of students coming in, 250 a week, that it's not getting funding for. So uh, how much? Well, in Colorado, uh, the per-pupil funding is about $8,076 per pupil this year. So that's what they're missing out on and on every student that comes in after the January count day. So that presents a budgeting challenge um, for the Denver Public Schools because they're not getting the appropriate funding to deal with this big influx of students. And generally speaking, you don't see this situation. Uh, you know, once a count day is done, historically across districts, you see fewer students as the year goes on because um, a lot of times school districts will have promotions or even give away gifts uh, to students to come in on that day when the count is so that they, they get the most number of students to be um, figured in on when it comes to funding. So that's not happening in Denver right now. So that's one of the problems. Also, Denver Public Schools has adopted a policy it calls language justice. Language justice is a new thing, and, and the, the Denver was one of the few school districts to officially adopt it as a goal. It's a long-term goal it wants to do. And then basically, what it, you know, the school district had, what, in 2022, 90,250 students. About 35,000 what they call multilingual learners. And that means they have home languages other than English. So what the district is trying to do, uh, and it's part of its equity plan, is to allow those students to learn in their home language. Okay. So that means the only way around that is to do two things. Uh, one, hire more bilingual instructors and also uh, hire more translators. And that's going to be expensive because that's staff and that's personnel. And that in, in any business, that's your most expensive cost. So that's one of the other challenges. If they want to live up to the goal of, of language justice, they're going to have to hire translators that can deal you know, with this new group of students who might not speak any English at all. Well, and many of these migrant students, they're not necessarily coming from just one country, correct? They're there's a number of different countries that they're coming from, so a number of different countries. Yeah, they're coming from all over. You know, the last federal report I saw, had, I think it was more than a dozen countries listed that they're coming from. So, uh, and that's something that, um, you know, that they have to do. It should be noted also that there is a federal law that, that states, uh, and it was updated in 2012. But basically what it states is that this, these schools, these public schools, are responsible for any child that comes to the United States and they're entitled to equal access to basic public education. Okay. And it, that law states regardless of citizenship and immigration status. So the school district does not have a choice here. They have to take these students in. And that's what we're seeing in Denver right now. I, I would also say that this is probably going on. This has to be going on in every sanctuary city that's taking in. So that means it's happening in Chicago. It's happening in New York. And it's also happening in Los Angeles because those are the targeted cities that Greg Abbott has used to bus uh, migrants from Texas. So, you know, all these people are coming with children. These uh, cities are going to have to deal with a big influx 
of migrant students coming in and without the appropriate funding to pay for those uh, students until, you know, the next student count, if they stick around. Now, there's there's a thing in Denver uh, right now that the school district is looking at, and that is when migrants come into Denver, the city is now enforcing a 42-day uh, limit at their shelter. After 42 days now, migrant families have to have uh, a plan and know where they're going to go because the city can't, as said, they, we can't hold you and shelter you for more than 42 days. So you might see a lot of these students leaving, uh, and that's one thing that they're just starting to check because we don't know what's going to happen because the city didn't, this is a new problem to the city and they weren't, from what I understand, weren't enforcing the 42 limit, but they are going to now. So some of these students might be gone in 42 days. Uh, that's what the, the, the district said it's tracking right now. And I'm sure that'll bring up other challenges having more turnover. Well, thank you for your insights on this story, Tom. Thank you, Eliana and Tom, for that update. You've been listening to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm your host, Chris Krug. In Washington, D.C., the House of Representatives heard further testimony and impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Dan McCaleb is back to tell us more. James Biden, the brother of President Joe Biden, testified behind closed doors this week before a congressional committee in the ongoing impeachment inquiry into the president over the Biden family's business dealings overseas. Joining me today to talk about this latest news is the Center Square's Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief, Casey Harper. So I know the testimony was not open to the public, Casey, but what did we learn after the fact? Sure. I mean, so there was some leaks of, for instance, James Biden's opening testimony that came to the media and were widely reported on. Um, the top line takeaways are, as you may have expected, James Biden wholeheartedly defended his brother, President Joe Biden, and said that, you know, the president didn't have anything to do with this. He didn't know what was going on. He did not benefit financially from any overseas deals. And of course, just to catch our listeners up, the allegations are that, you know, spearheaded by Hunter Biden and and also helped by James Biden, who testified, the president's brother and the president's son, um, they went all around the world overseas using the Biden brand and made deals, um, got got big deals, raked in, you know, the figures change, but more than $20 million to about 20 bank accounts. And, you know, House Oversight Chair, um, Representative James Comer, Republican of Kentucky, says that, you know, there's kind of this scheme to get the money in these bank accounts, shuffle all the money around so it was impossible to track it, and then have the money come out to a family member who then would give the money to President Biden. We do have two checks, totally $240,000 that did go to the president. Those checks were called loan repayments in the memo lines, but Republicans say that, you know, that there's a lot of fishiness going on right there. So overall, these allegations have been building, evidence has been building, but the president's brother came in this week and did his best to exonerate a sitting president. Uh, James Biden, the president's brother, his testimony also came after revelations that the uh, that a former FBI informant who, who had provided some testimony against the Bidens, that he was indicted. The Department of Justice charged him with saying he lied to the FBI and worked with Russian intelligence. That's, that's sort of a curveball uh, for the Republicans who are uh, investigating the Bidens. Definitely. I mean, this definitely put Republican lawmakers on their on their heels. This impeachment inquiry, which centers around these allegations, is led mostly by um, Comer, who I've referenced, and Jim Jordan, the House Oversight Chairman. Um, the, the Ways and Means Committee is also involved. But this indictment in question was against a uh, an FBI informant who had, for the most part, been kept secret. His name is Alexander Smirnov. 
He had worked for the FBI, seems like for over a decade, he was paid by the FBI to be an informant. And he filed this informant document, essentially saying that the president, Hunter Biden, received millions of dollars in payments. And now the DOJ is indicting him basically for for lying to the FBI. And so, you know, it's definitely politically, it's a bad look for Republicans when one of your best witnesses is indicted, of course. But Republicans were really defiant and said, hey, that obviously, if this isn't true, then we want to get to the truth. And that's fine. But there's plenty of other evidence corroborating this case. So and I think that is true. I think, you know, the Democrats were immediately saying this all needs to be thrown out. See, this is the smoking gun showing that this whole thing is Russian disinformation, which has really been the line from the beginning, Dan. If you remember, when Hunter Biden's laptop first came out, uh, the mainstream media, New York Times and others, even Twitter at the behest of the FBI, uh, said that this whole story was Russian disinformation and the laptop did not exist. Of course, now we know the laptop did exist and the media and Twitter was really wrong, whether they knew it or not. But whether it was intentionally lying or just inaccurate, they were wrong about that. So that's been the story from the beginning, though, that this is Russian disinformation. So that narrative is popping up here again. But uh, Comer in particular and, and Jordan defended the investigation. They said, you know, the facts of the case are the same, even without this witness to corroborate them. We know that Biden, Hunter Biden was on the board of Burisma. We know that the president interfered in Ukrainian affairs on behalf of an energy company his son was connected with. He said, you know, we know that Hunter Biden wasn't qualified for that board, which you can you can debate that a little bit. Um, we know that we have these check copies of these checks. We know that we have this millions of dollars coming in. Um, so it's definitely a bad look for Republicans. It's definitely, you know, make it hurts the credibility of the impeachment inquiry. But there's still a lot of evidence that was not relying on that particular FBI informant. And the ongoing inquiry, impeachment inquiry into the president, of course, comes as the U.S. House has already impeached Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over the border crisis. Uh, Mayorkas now awaits trial in the Senate where Democrats have control. There has been no information about you know when the Senate will conduct its its hearings on the House impeachment of him. And of course, all of this is happening during a presidential election year with President Biden, Joe Biden, pretty much the guaranteed nominee, unless he decides to step aside because of concerns over his his memory loss and his mental condition. And former President Donald Trump, who there's a there's a primary in uh, South Carolina this weekend, um, is the almost a sure nominee for the on the Republican side. So how does this impeachment inquiry briefly, Casey, how is it going to impact the overall presidential election? Right. I mean, this is interesting times. Two impeachments currently underway. One actually, you know, across the finish line and, and Biden's it's underway. Trump faced his own impeachment proceedings and now faces nearly 100 criminal charges. So I think in some sense, these things can kind of wash out uh, and cancel each other out in voters' minds because it's hard for either candidate to say the other is corrupt. I mean, it's hard for Trump to go after Biden's corruption, although he does, when he faces so many of his own charges. And the same for Biden. I mean, Biden can't attack Trump too much for any corruption because he he faces so many allegations of his own. And so I think they'd rather talk about other things. Trump would rather talk about the border and Biden would rather talk about abortion and defending democracy. And they're both going to try to hammer those messages. Well, thank you for your insight. As always, Casey, listeners can keep up with this ongoing uh, story and more at thecentersquare.com. Thank you to Dan and Casey for that update. That will do it for the first half of the Center Square Radio Hour. After the break, we'll look at more top stories from across the nation. What is the role of fentanyl in car crashes? 
Why are students protesting a new cell phone policy at a high school in Houston, Texas? What's blocking black families from getting on the home ownership ladder? All that and more when we return on the Center Square Radio Hour. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. Here are this week's quick hits, some of the stories you may have missed at thecentersquare.com. In Washington state, the proposed supplemental House and Senate budgets include a provision for $150 million in energy rebate vouchers funded by revenue from carbon auctions under the Climate Commitment Act. Both versions propose one-time vouchers of $200 per household with differences in timing and conditions. Republicans see the vouchers as an acknowledgement of the impact of the carbon tax, while Democrats defend them as support for low-income residents and investments in climate action. The debate reflects broader discussions about the effectiveness and consequences of climate policies. In California, lawmakers are proposing Assembly Bill 2319 requiring all individuals involved in prenatal and perinatal care to undergo implicit bias training every two years, acknowledging the needs of those giving birth, including non-binary and transgender individuals. Healthcare facilities failing to comply could face fines of $10,000 for the first violation and $25,000 for subsequent ones alongside inclusion on a state website. This bill builds upon Senate Bill 464, which required implicit bias training focusing on the role of implicit bias in the health disparities in communities of color. It also aims to boost compliance with implicit bias training by creating enforcement mechanisms. In Illinois, Democrat State Representative Kelly Cassidy has introduced House Bill 5152, aiming to provide a $500 tax credit for abortion providers, those seeking abortions, legal guardians of seekers, and public school teachers relocating to Illinois because of abortion bans and educational content restrictions elsewhere. Cassidy sees it as a supportive measure for those escaping restrictive states, while opponents such as Mark Dixon of Sanctuary Cities for the Unborn criticize it as part of a divisive agenda. Planned Parenthood lauds Illinois as a vital hub for abortion access, while Republican State Representative Adam Niemerg urges opposition, framing the bill as detrimental to Illinois' future. In Ohio, state senators introduced Senate Bills 215 and 135 aimed at curbing foreign campaign contributions. They built on past legislation that prohibited foreign contributions to candidates. Republican Ohio Senator Teresa Gavarone emphasized the need to prevent foreign influence on ballot issues and make Ohio elections about Ohioans. These come after Republican losses on three ballot initiatives in 2023 and the significant spending in those elections by groups such as the 1630 Fund, which has received at least $245 million from Swiss billionaire Hans-Jörg Weiss since 2016. And U.S. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack urged 44 governors to enhance food stamp programs after reports of a significant increase in payment errors. The USDA estimates that over 59,000 households across those 44 states have been affected by fraudulent transactions, That's prompted calls for improved processing to ensure timely and accurate distribution of benefits. Others suggest simple solutions such as chip cards and modern systems to curb the fraud. You can find more on these stories and others like them from across the country at thecentersquare.com. We'll be right back with more on the Center Square Radio Hour. 
Knowledge is power, and you deserve to know what happens in your state government. That's why the Center Square's reporting zeroes in on state authorities publishing stories that show where your money goes and who spends it. The Center Square gives power to the taxpayer by tracking politicians' use of the people's money and demanding transparency from state-run agencies. This is how the Center Square equips you, the American taxpayer, to hold your state government accountable. Sign up now for your state's Center Square newsletter at thecentersquare.com. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. In Pennsylvania, fentanyl plays a significant role in drug-related car crashes. Eliana Kernodal, Assistant General Manager of America's Talking Network, is here to tell us more. Joining me today is Anthony Hennan, the Center Square's Pennsylvania reporter. Anthony, fentanyl-connected overdose deaths have been rising pretty rapidly in recent years, and it's been in the news a lot, but that's not the only area where we've seen fentanyl contributing to fatalities. Some pretty significant numbers on fatal car crashes came out. Can you lay those out for us? Yeah. So, you know, Pennsylvania in recent years, we've seen, you know, multiple years where more than 5,000 people have died from an overdose. And so that, that's been bad enough. That's, I believe, about second nationwide, uh, which is already um, wild compared to a decade ago. I mean, this is really really developed and from a small scale problem to a really, really big one. But now we're also seeing this on the roads and on driving. So one study from Jerry, which is a car insurance app, um, was looking at some data from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and showed that uh, 6% of Philadelphia's fatal crashes involved drugs from 2018 to 2021. 2% of all traffic fatalities were connected to fentanyl which is pretty high when you drill down into this because 32% of all drug-related fatalities were connected to fentanyl, which if you just, you know, j- just by looking at if we did not have such a big problem here with fentanyl, with illicit opioids, you know, the roads would be dramatically safer. And when we're looking at Pennsylvania, um, 21% of fatal crashes in Bucks County involved drugs, 15% in Delaware and Chester counties involved drugs, and 12% of fatal crashes in Lancaster County involved drugs. Um, So this is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. This generally follows population trends. Um, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh's metro areas have the highest concentration of these drug-related traffic fatalities, but it's definitely something where we've seen, as on the streets, um, you know, people have been dying of uh, overdose deaths. Um, This is also leaking out into, you know, people just driving home or, you know, driving around town getting taken out by someone who is, you know, high on fentanyl. And it's not just fatal car crashes too, though, right? We see these numbers in other kinds of collisions, right? Yeah, um, you know, we, we don't exactly have a clean um, data point on how many, you know, non-fatal traffic collisions are connected to drugs or fentanyl. Um, but you, you, you can find a number of examples. Um, in June 2022, um, of course, uh, there's a woman in a Montgomery County collision who was on fentanyl and killed a 77-year-old woman. But you can look back to 2019, a woman in Lancaster County was sentenced up to a decade in prison for a collision um, that injured a woman and her 11-year-old daughter, who both thankfully survived, um, but that's still a fentanyl-related crash. And last July in Allegheny County, a one-car crash uh, was caused by a man on a handful of drugs, and his five-year-old son was in the back seat. So, you know, even if we're 
expanding the look just from fatal fentanyl-related crashes. Um, Non-fatal crashes are also, unfortunately, more and more common. And fentanyl has been impacting a variety of other areas in the state as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously settlement money coming from the um, from various, I mean, five or six opioid related cases um, with places like CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, um, not to mention pharmaceutical companies. That's bringing a lot of money into Pennsylvania, um, into every state, really. But Pennsylvania is getting somewhere north of a billion dollars to spend over the next 18 years. So we're seeing this money go toward things, you know, fairly, you know, clearly drug connected things like expanding recovery programs and services to help people leaving hospital or leaving prison basically get back on their feet and, you know, live a sober life. We're seeing money go to, you know, county jails to develop um, medication assisted treatment programs for people addicted to opioids and other drugs. Uh, But we're also seeing this hit statewide legislation. I mean, you look in the Pennsylvania General Assembly, I mean, you can, there's probably north of a dozen legislators who either had a family member or friend die from an overdose or are former addicts. You know, uh, Representative Jim Gregory has been very public about his past struggle with drugs, and now he's become an advocate for a number of developing recovery programs in the state. Um, Representative Jim Struzzi had a family member who died from an overdose, um, and he's been a leading voice to push for um, legalizing fentanyl test strips, which happened last session. Or now he's the lone Republican voice in um, a committee to legalize syringe exchange programs. So we're seeing more and more legislators who have been personally affected by the overdose crisis or opioid crisis and overdose deaths. And that's really affecting what bills, what laws are eventually coming to fruition in Pennsylvania. Um, I I think that's actually kind of overlooked where we see a lot of different states pushing various programs or various reforms. Um, But in Pennsylvania, it seems more and more it's been personal for legislators. And that's really shaping what becomes law or what programs get funding boosts. Well, that's all the time we have today. Listeners can keep up with this story and more at thecentersquare.com. Thank you, Eliana and Anthony, for that update. You're listening to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm your host, Chris Krug. In education news, a Houston high school banned cell phones during school hours. Dan McHale is back to tell us more. Joining me again today is Chalkboard's K-12 editor, Brennan Clary. Brennan, since the invention of the smartphone, schools across the country have struggled to deal with students, their phones, and the distractions to learning that they can cause. A high school in Houston made the recent decision to ban all student cell phone use on campus, leading to a mini-revolt by students. But it's been some problems with students that led to the ban. Tell us more about what's going on at James Madison High School in South Houston, Brendan. Yeah, of course. So the policy here, Dan, is that the uh, Houston Independent School District, they've had a policy that prohibits students from using any cell phones in class. Right. But there was some uh, fighting at the school district and some different things that led to the school saying you are not going to be able to have your cell phone at all during lunch. And so that is when students uh, got up in arms and they started protesting outside the school and they had signs and stuff saying, you know, this is not, we're not going to go in there uh, to give up our phones. And I think that they were collecting phones at the main office and then you get them back at the end of the day. Essentially, those privileges were 
as the school says, indefinitely revoked um, because the cell phone video has been at the center of multiple recent fights on campus. So that was an issue. And basically, reportedly, there's video of one of the schools, uh, the school's principal, Edgar Contreras, in an altercation with a student. So it's, you know, that that was something that was felt. And the school district reviewed that and said that it was not not a problematic thing that, you know, maybe it was justified. Uh, and that, that's, you know, the the procedure for if a student is acting a certain way, you you put them in a in a hold and, and sort of neutralize the situation. So they said that there was nothing going on there. But now, you know, the, stu- the students are basically very up in arms about this and saying that it, that it feels more like a prison. And this is the just the backdrop of this down in, in Houston. There was a takeover from the state, essentially. So they the state came in, the Texas Education Agency, they have like a state appointed board of commissioners, I believe. I don't think that they're it's like it's not like a school board per se. It's not elected. It's it's a state takeover. And that was a big a big thing that I reported on last year when that initially happened. That's that's happened some sometimes uh, in the state's history, I believe. And but it, it is quite rare for the state to come in and say we're going to take this over because of the test scores, because of different like um, individualized education plan issues, I believe. And so essentially, you know, this has been part of that of like, we're going to, it's called the new education system. And so I'd say, uh, and Mike Miles is the school superintendent there who is from the state. And so basically, you know, he, he had a press conference where he talks about this and he, you know, laid it out there like, look, we know what happens when students have cell phones. And we know that it is important to make sure that they don't have these in the classroom. And in this case, they lost the opportunity to use them at school, right? So it was this is kind of interesting backdrop there of like, hey, we're going to really try to turn things around. We know that this is best for schools uh, students. And specifically, he said, you know, there might be bullying that could happen. Meaning to sell drugs was something that he cited. So I mean, they you know must have issues with that, and all kinds of things can happen on a cell phone. Some students at uh, at the high school they apparently met with Madison school officials, and they have a list of demands. So, you know, they, they basically told administrators, I'm, I'm looking right at a, co- a copy of demands, reportedly a copy of the demands. They they said that student voices uh, need to be actually listened to, not just heard, that teachers and students should no longer be micromanaged, that the cell phone policy needs to be immediately repealed, that we're treated like students attending a high school, not convicts in a prison. We are students. We've done nothing wrong. We have protested, spoken up, and retaliated, retaliated against oppressive policies. So and they called for specific people to be fired. I mean, this kind of thing of, of saying this is what we're going to do and that we need a formal apology to the t- teacher, staff and students of James Madison High School. So they, they're trying to levy these demands. And basically, uh, Superintendent Mike Miles was like, look, we're not in the business of taking orders from students and we're not going to do this. So it's, it's an interesting sort of thing to... Um, you have, you know, in other school districts, you, you might see administrators. We've kind of heard about the news stories of and, and written about them of, you know, students are circulating a petition to draw some media uh, attention. And then the administration is sort of like, we're going to back down. I haven't seen anything else since this. I mean, the this was well reported, right? We covered this. Local news covered this as well. Nothing I've seen indicates that they're going to walk back this policy. Uh, you know, they're going to continue. And this is what he said during the press conference uh, to reporters as well, that if students are outside of school and they need to be in school, then they'll get suspended. They'll face all the consequences. You know, they, they don't have the right to just kind of protest indefinitely and not face, you know, those sorts of repercussions at school. So it's like this is also part of the broader question about should cell phones be in school, I think, too, Dan. So that's, that's, you know, kind of at play here is like, what is the role of cell phones in a school? And what do experts say about that? And I mean, I think that, you know, as, as Superintendent Mike Miles says in, in Houston, you know, there, there are some pretty obvious benefits for, for getting those 
phones away from students during the school day. And, you know, anecdotally from teachers, that is it's a, it's a huge distraction, right, to have those. But there are people who say, uh, and as we talked to, Chalkboard News talked to an expert um, last year, I believe, you know, there, there are some people who say this is a thing that students need to know how to manage. They know they need to know how to use their, their smartphone sort of in daily life and how do you sort of, you know, put that uh, aside enough to get stuff done. You know, basically, how do you learn how to live with that technology? Because it's not going away. So you can kind of argue about that. I don't, I don't know. So that I feel like you can kind of, you can kind of see both sides there, right? Of like, you know, we don't let students smoke essentially until they're 21 because we know that they can't handle it. Is the same thing true for smartphones? I'm, again, I'm not sure. You know, that's, that's sort of like the broader debate here is should students, should, should school districts be able to say, look, no cell phones at all? I'm, I'm glad I'm with you. I can see both sides of it. Thank you for your chalkboard reporting on this story, um, Brendan, but that is all the time we have. Listeners can keep up with developments on the Houston School Story on all stories related to K-12 through education at chalkboardnews.com. Thank you, Dan and Brendan, for that update. You've been listening to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm your host, Chris Krug. In economic news, housing affordability is an ongoing conversation. Joining me as always to get into it is Ph.D. economist Dr. Orfe Devangi. Dr. Rowe, you wrote an article for Crane Chicago Business that ran with the headline, What's Blocking Black Families from Getting on the Homeownership Ladder? And you do get into that, but it's also a question of what is blocking everyone from getting in on the homeownership ladder? Exactly. Exactly. I think that when I started uh, thinking about this and putting in a little bit of the research that went behind this article, my question was really, look, mortgages have increased, uh, surpassed the 7% mark. Is there anyone out there that doesn't yet own a home that can actually afford the mortgage in their local market? And I found out that of the 40 million families that do not own the home they live in in the U.S., 5.3 million families could actually take on a new mortgage, even at 7% mortgage. In other words, they could comfortably afford to pay that mortgage and their income would be 3x the monthly mortgage payment, right? So... The HUD, you know, says what the, the, you know, 30% of your income is considered for on housing. It's considered affordable. So, so I, I ran with that and, and I found out like, look, there's a lot of families across the country that could still afford to take on a mortgage that uh, don't yet own. It just so happens 640,000 of them roughly estimate from the American community survey are black families. And then I said, well, you know, what's the interesting thing here? The interesting thing here is that. Black families, the gap between black families and white families in terms of home ownership is vast. It's almost 30 percentage points. And if the gap between those who I consider mortgage ready families is not that big, why is it that we don't see the home ownership gap right. much smaller? Here's the thing. They might have the income, but they may not have the down payment. Maybe they don't have the closing cost. Maybe they don't have all of the middle, you know, the fees that are associated, the transaction cost that's associated with, with buying a home. That's an issue. They might also not have, look, one of the top reasons, uh, for the gap in denial rates for, for mortgage applications, right? One of the top reasons is, is the lack of a lengthy credit history. They may have some credit. They may be paying their bills on time, but they don't have a long enough credit history to take out a mortgage and they get denied. Right? So all of these issues, there are so many roadblocks that are in place for, for people. 
And, and let me add the last thing on this. And maybe we can go a little bit further. The fact that so many black families were kind of shut out of housing in the past means their parents didn't have the land, the house. They don't have the ability to take out home, home equity to help their kids. Nowadays, most, most people get their down payment from the bank of mom and dad. Right. And that's true. Well, that's, I mean, and I think that that's, that's been, that's been true for, for quite a while. I mean, when, my wife and I bought our first house in, in 1998. Uh, my down payment was largely financed through a gift from my father-in-law. You know, and that was, you know, when, you know, and you still can, you know, when you could buy a house for three and a half percent down or whatever and basically have a, you know, first time home buyers issue. I mean, I realize that the three and a half percent now is different than the three and a half percent in terms of the amount. Let me ask you this. I mean, yes. you know, is, is there a geographic Sort of, uh, yeah. not to say bias, but I mean, is there, a, is, are there parts of the country where the gap or the barrier to home ownership, um, regardless of somebody's race is greater? Great question. Great question. It's, uh, you know, you, when you, when I look at the data, uh, what I find is that, you know, there's nothing we can do about mortgage rates, really. You know, mortgage rates are rising because inflation, the pressure, the economic activity is strong, but, there's something we can do about building more housing in this country. The places that built the most housing and where price growth wasn't as uh, strong during the pandemic, prices and rents didn't increase as much during the pandemic, are the places where you're going to find the largest share of families that are mortgage ready that can go out and take on a mortgage. Mm-hmm. I think that's fascinating. They are the places that are the most affordable. Right. And so you look at places like Houston, Texas. In Houston, Texas, 12, 12% of black families can actually go out and take out a mortgage. They could afford it. You know, and the share of white families is even higher. And so you well, look at these. Well, Houston yeah. itself in, in, in recent times, Harris County, you know, and more broadly, that used to be like the big city to go to to get the kind of house that you wanted. And it was one of the primary attractions to mm-hmm. Houston. And that does not seem to be the case. I mean, uh, any longer that the, that well, the real estate prices in Harris County and in Houston proper. They've increased. They've well, increased for sure. It's got to be demand driven. For sure. But, but com- in comparison to other places across the country, and I'll, and I'll name a few places where, you know, Charlotte, North Carolina, I give you Charlotte, North Carolina, great place to be a black family, a black writer, because you have access, because you can actually go out and afford to buy a house. In Charlotte, North Carolina, still, even after the price increases, you know, and, and I compare that to, let's compare that to a place like Seattle or Boston or, you know, even Dallas is slightly more expensive than Houston. Yeah. Right. On that and more restrictive. When you look at, I, I did a very interesting exercise. I looked at the cross section between land use regulations and the share of families that do not, does not yet own a home but could actually afford the typical mortgage. And it's very clear to me that the places that are the most restrictive are the most unaffordable and are keeping people out. You know, New York, Los Angeles, Seattle, Providence, Rhode Island, you know. And then you have some places that you you wouldn't suspect to be very restrictive, but they are still. You know, places like Youngstown, Ohio, still somewhat restrictive. You have places like 
even Orlando, Florida, you know, you see the expansion of Orlando, Florida, you know, they still somewhat restricted. And then you go to in Florida, you have like smaller places like Deltona, Florida, that are very, very open to building and to more housing. And so, you know, there is something we can do. And I think that starts with allowing builders to build so that you can get the supply increase uh, that will actually help to keep rents down and house prices down and make housing more affordable. I appreciate your thoughts as always, Dr. Rowe. That will do it for another week of the Center Square Radio Hour. The Center Square Radio Hour is a production of America's Talking Network, produced by Eliana Kernodal. If you missed some of today's show, you can find it at americastalking.com. I'm Chris Krug, and on behalf of everyone at Frank Lewis Foundation, thank you for listening to the Center Square Radio Hour.